Welcome to The Culture Bar, a panel discussion podcast exploring, dissecting and shedding light on important topics in the arts and music world which matter to you. Welcome to The Culture Bar podcast, where today's panel discussion will cover all things music and science. I'm Lissy Kelleher-Clark, Digital Transformation Manager and HP Foundation Manager at Harrison Parrott and recent alumnus of the Music, Mind and Brain programme at Goldsmiths, University of London. Today, I'm joined by the luminary leaders of this programme, Dr. Diana Omigi, Dr. Daniel Mullenziefen, and Professor Lauren Stewart, who will be taking us on a whistle-stop tour of the cognitive neuroscience, psychology, biology, chemistry, and physics of music. Um, so let's get started by talking about why the programme was founded. Okay, well... Um... This was uh, an area of interest of mine. I actually did my PhD around the cognitive neuroscience of music. But when I started doing that in uh, 2000, more than 20 years ago now, this was an area that was really in its infancy. Um, So really, you know, my PhD program was kind of happening at the same time that worldwide this area was kind of just starting to take off. So um, I think it's really an interesting um, area for people uh, interested in cognitive neuroscience and the mind because um, music is is very rich um, domain um, and it's also a domain where you can look at the building blocks of music um, and you can reduce it to its component parts but you can also build it up to something that is extremely complex so this is useful in terms of trying to understand how the mind and brain process music because um, something for instance like language is a little harder to um, to do that with because um, we can't really strip uh, language down to its component parts very easily because we are so um, uh, I don't know it's such an automatic stimulus for us that it's, it's a bit harder to do this with. Music also offers um, the chance to examine some other areas of cognition. Um, so we can use music as a model of those systems. We can use it as a model of um, skill learning and plasticity. We can use it as a model of complex auditory um, processing. We can use it as a model of interpersonal synchrony when people are playing music together. We can look at memory using music. We can look at the parts of the brain that are still intact after um, brain injury or neurodegeneration. So really there's just such a huge plethora of questions that can be addressed um, uh, through music. And um, at the time uh, when I uh, was sort of thinking about my first steps as as an academic, Um, I realised that there wasn't really any programme in the world that looked um, both at the psychology of music but also the biological aspects of it. So how is it, what's going on in the brain when people perceive, learn, produce music? Um, So this is really why we founded it and Goldsmiths turned out to be um, a wonderful place to do that because it's really a world leader in combining um, creativity with science um, and uh, really sort of taking an interdisciplinary approach. Um, And I'm very pleased to say that more than 20 years on, um, we don't actually have any competitors in this space, um, which means that we can attract um, the very best students worldwide to come and take our programme. And of course, when they do come, 
they're all extremely surprised to find that there's um, a cohort of other, um, uh, other people who, who are similarly fascinated by music, mind and brain and they really feel like they've found their tribe and for, for us it's a great pleasure because it means that those students gel very well together. They are often really excellent musicians as well and so they make a lot of music together um, and have a good time as well as uh, learning some really fascinating content on the programme. That was excellent. Okay. And I can <laughs> attest to the fact that you make fantastic friends here. I count some of my cohort amongst my best friends now. Um, which I guess leads very nicely to kind of thinking about what type of person the programme might attract. Yeah, so we started out um, with this programme in 2008. Um, and at that time, um, we, uh, we attracted students who predominantly had a music background, so they'd done a music degree, or students who'd uh, done a psychology degree. And um, that, was, that was okay, but what we soon realised was that the, the course has got so much content um, uh, and uh, crosses so many disciplinary boundaries um, that it actually can be quite challenging um, for particularly music students if they haven't had experience with um, some scientific approaches um, in addition to their music background. So um, that can mean, you know, a student who has done uh, some private reading, has, has done some work shadowing with a, um, a researcher involved in the science of music, um, has maybe done a project that um, veers towards music cognition or um, music neuroscience as part of their music degree. So over the, you know, uh, after the first few years of the programme, we, um, we started to insist that, um, you know, if students had only got a music background, however fascinated they were by the science of music, we sent them away to, um, to get some experience in those other areas because actually when they come to, to the programme, there's quite a lot of um, quantitative methods, so statistics and experimental design. There's also quite a lot of neuroanatomy and neuroscience to get to grips with. Um, so we found that actually having a little bit of a foundation before they begin can be critical. But saying that, we also um, observed that in fact um, there's probably very few students who begin the programme with a good grounding in all of the areas that we cover and actually um, there's a lot of peer-to-peer -peer learning that goes on such that the music, uh, music background students um, can, can help the, the more science-based people and um, people who have come from like a, quite a hardcore sort of maybe um, a quantitative science background can help um, fill in the gaps of, of their peers as well. So in that sense, we say, you know, don't think that you've got all the answers you know, you can fill gaps for other students and they can fill gaps for you in addition to all the teaching that we provide as well. That was certainly our experience. We had study groups for every different module, which was chaired by a different student, depending on how, how gifted they were in that arena. Brilliant. So that was a really lovely part of the course for us. And again, it kind of leads us very nicely, since we're talking about kind of the diversity of topics in the course, to kind of the diversity of research that you know, everyone here is engaged with. Uh, Diana, what kind of research are you engaged with? Um, so 
I guess I, after doing a degree in neuroscience at the uh, undergraduate level, I've always been particularly fascinated by how the brain makes sense of music. Um, I therefore found a, uh, a researcher who could help me um, uh, study this uh, during a PhD. I happened to find Lauren Stewart, and we, at this point, in, when she was founding the MMB, uh, we began to investigate uh, a disorder known as congenital amusia. Um, fascinating uh, topic, um, but after a while I decided I really wanted to understand um, how um, typical listeners make sense of music. So over a course, over a couple of uh, postdoc positions in Europe and elsewhere, um, I began to look um, more deeply into how so-called subcortical areas of the brain are tracking um, information in music. Uh, what do I mean? So um, Lauren mentioned already that you can break music into its sort of subcomponents. You could, for instance, take a melody and consider the notes. And uh, thanks to lots of great work that's been done by uh, people currently and people before us, uh, we can sort of um, characterize individual notes, for instance, in a melody with regard to how surprising they should be to a listener. And when you're sort of able to measure from um, parts of the brain uh, that care about surprise, uh, what you see is that every single note in the melody is being tracked in terms of um, you know, how surprising or how unexpected it might be to a listener. And this is um, interesting work because it reminds us that music isn't this you know, highly subjective uh, thing that only you get. <laughs> uh, we're all processing it in very similar ways and yes, a lot of experience will come and sort of uh, mold how we you know, make sense and feel emotions in response to music, but there are some fundamental mechanisms and processes underlying that. So suffice it to say, after sort of this kind of research, uh, um, when I was doing nothing but research, um, it made sense to continue to do that work when I came to Goldsmiths, uh, rejoined Goldsmiths recently. Uh, and so with my students, we continue to ask questions around um, how like I said, uh, parts of the brain, how our physiology, and by that I mean our heart rate, our breathing rate, even how our pupils are responding. We're looking at how all of these are sort of following um, how you know music as it unfolds and how all of that might contribute to the emotions, feelings, um, judgments we make uh, about music. Daniel, what kind of research are you doing? Um, so I think I do research in a uh, very, fundam very fundamental question with regards to music perception. So, for example, how our memory works for music, how we perceive and process music, um, and also how we design tests and, uh, for musical skills and assess musicality on a, a general and basic level. And then in addition to tackling these very fundamental questions. Uh, there's also research that I do sometimes with uh, industry partners or collaborators from other institutions on very applied topics that link to these uh, fundamental questions. For example, we're currently running a project on um, the emotional semantic content and memory of uh, sonic branding. So this idea that a brand also has a, can have a sonic identity where you choose uh, brand tracks or audio logos that um, would enhance the perception of a particular brand. And obviously this 
in the end is a um, psychological question and you can then use all the tools and tricks that you learn from your experimental psychology class to find out what uh, are the important features to, to drive um, or to construct a good audio logo, a sonic logo that works really well for the brand and also works for the people perceiving it. And similarly, <clears throat> I've been doing work on the applied question of music plagiarism and uh, how similar two pieces of music or two melodies need to be in order to be considered plagiarism. And this is a very uh, fine line and a tricky decision, as you could uh, imagine, because in the end, we only have 12 notes in uh, our Western musical system. And there are only so many combinations that you, meaningful combinations that you can form using these 12 notes. But um, at what point could you say that uh, similarities that arise between two pieces aren't just due to chance or to the limited number of options that you have, but that one uh, piece of music is the source for the other piece of music. And uh, in our commercial world, this could then have um, very severe financial implications and that you need to share revenues with, uh, with the author of a, a piece that was existing prior to the ones that you published. That's great. Lauren, what are you researching? So a number of things really, um, but perhaps I should focus on my more recent projects um, which concern the application of what we know about how the mind and brain process music to situations um, of physical or mental well-being. So um, to be a bit more specific, um, I'm supervising uh, a PhD um, student, um, Pedro Douglas Kirk, um, and it's a collaboration with the National Hospital, particularly their stroke unit, and we're using um, uh, digital music-based approaches to um, design systems whereby music can both provide motivation but also information about um, a patient's rehabilitation. So, for instance, um, when someone has a stroke, they have to relearn even simple movements like um, a forward reach movement. And um, we know that uh, it's really important that they are practicing these movements for as much time as possible per day, which is very, very tiring and also quite boring for them. But it's also um, important for them to be performing these movements in the correct way. So you can perform a forward reach movement um, you can actually achieve the same goal by sort of leaning your whole body forward, putting your elbow out. So there's different ways to achieve the same um, goal. And actually we've, uh, well Pedro has designed a system whereby a patient's favourite music um, can be loaded into the system that he's devised, which is called Sonic Sleeve, and can provide a motivating framework um, as well as sort of giving information to the patient as to when they're performing the target movement in the correct way. And this has been a really interesting project and we've been working with clinicians at the National Hospital but also getting lots of um, user, um, end user feedback from the stroke patients. Um, another project that I'm work working on which has been really fascinating has been the basis of um, Dr. Katie Rose Sanfilippo's um, PhD and this is um, about using cultural, um, cultural practices um, in West Africa 
um, to support um, uh, a woman's mental health during pregnancy. So um, in particularly the Gambia, but also neighbouring Senegal, um, there are existing fertility societies which comprise um, women who've had experience of infertility or loss of a child in the first year of life. They make use, um, prolific use of song and dance in order to support other women in their community. Um, and Katie Rose and I and a larger interdisciplinary team, um, we received some funding from the Medical Research Council as well as the Arts and Humanities Research Council to actually go to the Gambia and to work with these fertility societies to co-design um, a brief intervention um, that would optimally um, reduce anxiety and depression symptoms during pregnancy. Why were we interested to do this? Well, our colleague, um, Vivek, Professor Vivek Glover at Imperial College had done some really seminal work showing that a woman experiencing stress and anxiety during pregnancy can actually transmit this um, to the growing fetus um, through pathways involving uh, cortisol receptors. So actually, if you intervene during pregnancy to reduce stress and anxiety, that's actually the most efficient way of helping not only the mother, but also the, um, the growing fetus as well, as opposed to waiting until after birth. We're, we're very used to thinking about interventions around postnatal depression, but actually antenatal depression and um, anxiety um, is the biggest predictor of postnatal depression. And actually, if you intervene at that point, you benefit the fetus as well in, in the most direct manner. So that's been fascinating um, to do that and to go to the Gambia and work um, with these women called the Canyoling Groups. And we actually published a, a paper where we showed that not only was the intervention feasible and acceptable and enjoyable by uh, a pregnant women that we recruited, but actually that it had significant um, uh, impact on stress and anxiety during pregnancy. So. This is something that we would now like to build on to do a full-scale randomised clinical trial. Um, and we believe it would be the first example of how a culturally embedded traditional musical practice could be um, used to, uh, to support health. Um, because often, actually, traditional practices um, are often quite maligned because um, they're often seen as sort of antithetical to um, biomedical progress and things. But actually, um, in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, there's actually a richness of musical tradition that is already being used in the service of health and well-being. Um, and of course, uh, you know, we the, the role that we had was simply really in tweaking what was happening there, but also in evaluating and trying to quantify the effect that these traditional practices um, were having. So there's just a couple of projects that I've been involved in. Um, uh, finally, perhaps, um, I've, I've been working with um, Dr. Casper Adiman in our department here at Goldsmiths, who's, who heads up the, um, the infant lab. And um, we've done a number of interesting projects together, one of which was um, uh, working with Imogen Heap, where we essentially helped Imogen to design a new song that would make babies happy. So that involved Imogen coming up with some ideas, some musical ideas, and Casper and I testing out those ideas on uh, a group of babies, and then essentially letting the babies vote 
um, by seeing uh, which bits of uh, Imogen's ideas they were smiling at when they so positive signs of of engagement and then feeding this back to Imogen and she went through a few iterations and we went through a few iterations of testing the babies and, and obs observing what the babies did and how they responded and that came up with the, um, the happy song which then went to the, uh, number one in the kids iTunes chart which was a really fun project to do. Um, alongside that we've been trying to quantify how much families are doing in the home with music um, and their infants um, and we've um, designed, also with Daniel actually, um, a, a scale called the Music at Home scale where parents um, self-report the kinds of things that they're doing at home with their babies. And there's quite a range in terms of um, what different families do at home. And the reason that we are particularly interested in this is because we think that song, um, especially the songs that you might um, engage with your baby at home, in, say in the first year of life, um, could act as a super stimulus for um, babies to learn language. And we know that um, essentially uh, a baby's language skills is really a, a very important predictor of how ready they are um, at the start of their school life. And there's a big gap between the, between the children who are least ready for school and most ready for school. And that's a gap that actually doesn't close during the school um, uh, the school years, if anything it gets even bigger. So, so really um, any sort of early childhood interventions that can help bootstrap language development um, will really be educationally extremely important and um, by quantifying and trying to understand what families do at home and why they perhaps families are not doing more of the kind of parent initiated singing um, that puts us in a position to think about interventions that could help these families um, to do more and perhaps it's easier to support a family to do more song singing at home with their babies than it is to support a family to do more book reading or do more conversational um, activities with a baby so this is an area that we're really interested in as well and some of the master's students um, on the music mind and brain program have been really critical in taking that work forward as well. If you're looking for a different kind of arts podcast, why not listen to Where's My Freaking Dressing Room? Join me, Helen Daniels. And me, Alex Simpson. As we discuss the world of classical music and what things are really like backstage. With conversations ranging from audition disasters to coronavirus meltdowns, performance highlights, lowlights and more, join us as we invite you behind the scenes for an Access All Arias account of the weird and wonderful world of classical singing. If you've ever wondered what it would be like to cross desert island discs with my dad wrote a porno, this is the podcast for you. Just no porn. One of the most exciting parts about the MMB is that you learn all of these different skills, you engage with all the different modules, and then you kind of get to bring that all together in your research project, which is kind of forms almost a third of the program, I'd say. And I mean, my research this year was with Diana, and we looked into music in adolescence and the role that the arts actually more broadly uh, play in adolescence and what some of the barriers might be to engaging with the arts and, and what indeed some of the enablers might be because the arts have 
an array of benefits uh, for those who engage. Uh, but this was just one of many, many different kind of projects that was on offer this year. So um, one of the projects that I supervised this year um, was relating to organists. Why would we be interested in organists? Well, they're a very interesting group of musicians because um, there is a very um, variable relationship between the motor act that an organist makes and the um, auditory consequence of that action. So, for instance, um, down at the bottom end of the keyboard, there, it, there can be quite a delay between uh, pressing and hearing a tone uh, as compared to when you make a key press at the top of the keyboard. And that's even different depending on the kind of instrument you're playing. So organists have to be able to assimilate this lag um, and they become actually a very interesting group to try to understand um, uh, the phenomenon of agency. What do I mean by agency? Agency is the feeling that you have produced an effect in the world. Um, we know that sometimes um, in disorders of agency, like schizophrenia, you might be acting upon the world, but not having a feeling that, that you have caused these things to happen in the world. So, and that's kind of the basis of things like hallucinations or delusions. Now, of course, uh, organists are quite a long way away from people with disorders of consciousness, but, we are, but nevertheless, they are a really interesting group to look at how, the, uh, how years of experience in dealing with this um, sensory motor delay um, might affect um, your feelings of agency and the experience of those two things being bound together, the action and the consequence of the action. Um, another project that I uh, supervised was about this music at home scale and we were interested in reaching families um, who are perhaps less represented in the published literature. So um, families who don't normally take part in research, who have low um, levels of education and low income. What are they doing in the home environment with their babies? Um, and how does that compare what they're doing musically versus what they are doing around book reading? So that was an interesting project as well. Diana, how about you? Um, so this year, we actually couldn't collect any data um, in person, <laughs> thanks uh, to not being able to do much in person. Um, so I had my students engage in a few different uh, projects that could be carried out online or you know, where data had already been collected. Uh, to begin with, uh, one where data had already been collected, it was a, an fMRI study and it was all about how um, you know, what systems of the brain are tracking the experience of novelty as we listen to a piece of music. Uh, why would we want to study that? Well, um, if uh, you cared about uh, um, aesthetics or neuroaesthetics, you may even have come across uh, literature to suggest that uh, the experience of novelty is something that really contributes to people's um, appreciation of an artwork. Um, of course, in certain artworks, this is just a, a unitary phenomenon, you get it you know, immediately. Others, like in the case of music, things are unfolding over time and you may get the feeling that something uh, new and interesting has happened from time to time and we were interested in what systems of the brain are sort of tracking this because um, there's lots of work has been done on where and how pleasure is derived from music and 
uh, it's been shown that uh, the so-called reward uh, pathways are very much involved, the same pathways that are important for, um, yeah, well, you know, are involved when we're consuming other pleasurable substances and things that are important for our survival. Um, so we thought, is it possible that actually when we're processing novelty or experiencing novelty in music, these um, networks are actually also um, uh, getting involved, and we found out that they, that they are, and it's very much in line, this is very much in line with what's been seen in, uh, you know, mouse models where people are asking questions around, you know, what areas of the brain are involved in processing novelty there, just the light switch coming on when, when there was nothing, you know, happening before, and again, this, and it's called the novelty bonus effect. It's something we are driven um, as organisms towards new um, experiences towards novelty because they have the potential to help us learn, uh, have a bit better model of the world and basically survive. And it's not surprising therefore that these kinds of experiences are rewarded. So uh, those students did really good work there. A couple of other projects that we were involved, I was involved in supervising or I supervised, uh, looked at topics like um, music and memory. Um, in one particular uh, project, um, they, my students created a really uh, neat uh, experimental design where participants in this experiment had to, first of all, let us know a little bit about uh, music that they rather liked. I won't go into details as to how we found that out, but they then engaged uh, a few weeks later uh, in uh, this study where they had to online or over a computer, sort of uh, drag things around uh, different uh, scenarios. Uh, we sort of built this day in the life of someone and they had to sort of uh, put themselves in this position and actually do things in, in an almost virtual environment. And the question was how, how does music, um, how does the degree to which we like uh, certain pieces of music affect how well we em encode uh, memories and later uh, recall them? And uh, there were two competing uh, theories or hypotheses. One was that if you really like a piece of music, it may distract you from what you're doing and not really help you um, encode those memories. Uh, there was another sort of hypothesis uh, coming from a body of work that look, looks at reward and memory and how those are interlinked that suggested that when you're doing something that's rewarding, um, that should sort of uh, make the memory system uh, be reinforced. Um, in fact, we found uh, data su su support for both of them. Uh, again, I won't go into details because we don't have the time here, but uh, it was, uh, again, really good work from those students. Um, and then finally, um, um, I've already, it's already been alluded to uh, by Lizzie, um, we, worked with some, uh, we worked with a couple of interesting charities this year. Uh, one of them is called Curious Minds, and they're a so-called broker um, um, agency basically um, providing arts opportunities to young people or facilitating those kinds of opportunities and we asked interesting questions like uh, what sort of barriers are there to engaging in the arts and um, we hypothesized that just you know a lack of curiosity in the first instance and this, is, this is something that we can have um, at different levels as a part of our personality uh, may act as a barrier and the question was how can we overcome this lack of curiosity in the first place because it's, we know from the research and the literature that actually engaging in the arts can uh, potentially boost curiosity so the idea to, was to sort of see how we can overcome an initial levels of a lack of interest in, in the arts or you know, things that we haven't done before to try to get people to engage in these sorts of activities and uh, therefore build these um, important uh, uh, personality traits that can sort of have important outcomes um, you know, benefit uh, uh, different aspects of our lives as we develop and get older. 
And yeah, apart from that, we also wanted to explore really this link between this idea that engaging the arts is good for young people. So uh, it's often been said, you know, it's good to engage in the arts, but our question was why? And so we began to develop a scale that tries to, um, or a tool, shall we say, that will allow us to understand what people are doing, young people are doing when they're engaging in the arts. And there's a field in um, psychology called positive psychology, where it's all about um, what we can do to sort of strengthen our, you know, you know, well-being, um, mental health, and generally uh, quality of life. And uh, they, they refer to something, um, uh, they refer to so-called character strengths, which are things that you can sort of promote um, or develop um, and which become a part of your sort of personality. And uh, the question is, are there character strengths, specific character strengths that people are building when they engage in different types of um, art um, um, arts activities, and if there are, can we measure what these um, uh, character strengths are, and can we, first of all, just ask scientific research questions, like if people are engaging in these um, arts, they're ex exercising these character strengths, can we see changes in well-being that are predicted by uh, development of these character strengths, and um, that would just be a, a research question that would help us better address whether, indeed, this is a mechanism towards better well, you know, a better well-being through the arts. But we can also help those people who are interested in providing arts activities because we can allow them almost to evaluate uh, the, the activities or the opportunities they're offering to see exactly what they might be doing for young people and almost better curating um, what they offer and helping those people uh, who need certain sorts of, um, who need particular types of help in terms of uh, things that they could develop as, as a person, maybe helping them find the right arts activities uh, to engage in to help them along, along the way, really. And I would say I'll end there, otherwise <laughs> I'll be speaking for another half hour. So fun. Though I'm very nervous and in a good way uh, to hear about the outcome of Daniel's Golden Ears experiment, given I've worked in agencies now for 10 years where <laughs> having Golden Ears is pretty much gospel. Uh, so... <laughs> I'm hoping your findings were that, you know, people do have golden ears and absolutely every artist manager, hat, you know, <laughs> owns a pair. <laughs> but maybe uh, not. <laughs> well, that's the crux that uh, most of the time we collect data in an anonymous way. And uh, I know that there were some people who did very well on the golden ears test, but I don't know whether they actually work in the right profession or not. <laughs> um, so this... Uh, a uh, study that uh, you're speaking about uh, was one uh, of the project I supervised this year. And it was typical in the sense that we were trying to develop an individual differences test. These tests uh, aim to um, assess skills or abilities that people have with music. And sometimes these, uh, these skills come through training and people know that they have these skills, but sometimes uh, people wouldn't even know how good they are, for example, uh, at discriminating um, recordings or performances of the same piece. That's something that's not an, often not trained as an explicit skill, but that people develop just by listening a lot or paying attention to music or because they have a better auditory system that is uh, due to genes or other um, factors of maturation and growth and this was a particular test where we wanted to find out 
uh, how well are people able to spot uh, tiny differences between performances of the same piece. Say two performers who perform the same piano piece or two singers who say, sing the same song, can you tell uh, whether it's the same recordings and whether they are different? And uh, yeah, what we developed then is a, is a tool to assess your golden ears ability. And that was uh, quite successful. And this project is part of a, yeah, um, a stream of projects that I've been supervising over recent years. And that started with um, a large initial project in 2011 that uh, Lauren and a couple of other colleagues uh, started back then. Uh, which was a huge citizen science experiment together with the BBC um, and their their audience. And uh, it was back then it was titled How Musical Are You? And we developed together with the BBC or for the BBC four listening tests as well as a questionnaire um, to for people to self-assess uh, their objective musical performance abilities as well as to tell us about their the amount of musical training that they have, as well as their subjective uh, assessment of how good their singing abilities or their, their listening abilities are. And this led to the development of a self-report questionnaire called the Goldsmith Musical Sophistication Index that is fairly widely used around the globe for assessing musical training and experiences. And we're quite happy that we back then we had the opportunity to, um, to develop this uh, with a large sample of uh, 150,000 participants. And uh, similarly with these listening experiments, um, after we'd completed the project with the BBC, um, we saw the need to develop more of these objective tests in a clever and scientifically rigorous way. And these tests then can be used for uh, educational purposes or for uh, training purposes for yourself or uh, just to track the development of musical ability over childhood and adolescence. And that's another big project that uh, we're currently running in the UK and Germany and potentially more countries as well, where we assess the same children between age 10 and 18 every year on their musical abilities. And we want to see how they grow their musical abilities and whether it's related to the type of training they receive uh, and how musical abilities co-develop with working memory, with general intelligence, but also with uh, psychosocial skills. This is a large project, uh, this longitudinal project called Long Gold, um, that uh, we've been um, running for a number of years now. And it's been possible to get uh, several students involved in aspects of this project over the years. So they were involved in the testing waves and analyzing the data and working directly with the children as well. And uh, the outcomes of uh, these master studies then often had uh, educational implications for interventions, for example, or for providing teaching materials uh, with music or around music for uh, schools who collaborate with us on the project. So we're quite uh, grateful that uh, this aspect of fundamental music psychology also has then repercussions in the educational world. Yeah, there was a, a project on absolute pitch. Absolute pitch is a very rare condition among humans, and it's the ability to identify um, a tone by its musical note name. So if you hear a beep, 
then if you have absolute pitch, you would be able to say, this is an uh, A sharp, or this is a C flat, or something like that. And uh, this ability with colors uh, is, uh, we all have that, or everyone almost has this ability to name a color uh, and recognize color by the absolute frequency and give it a, a color name. But for some reason, uh, very few humans don't have absolute pitch with uh, tones or in the auditory uh, domain. And we were interested in designing a new test for testing absolute pitch that would not require uh, that you've gone to music school before so that you wouldn't be able uh, to actually name notes in Western music notation. But we wanted to design a test that would equal a equally applicable to uh, people who are just self-taught or have grown up in a different musical culture and uh, therefore could be used around the globe. And um, with a student, we designed a memory paradigm um, where you just had to remember a certain pitch over a period of time with distractor tones that, that would interfere um, with your memory. And you could only do this task if you had some form of absolute pitch where you were able to recode the pitch that you were told to listen to and remember over some time. Um, and that was fairly successful. So um, I think we've, we're in a good place now to develop this test further and apply it with uh, people from different musical cultures as well and see whether it works uh, equally well there. Perfect. Well, what do you think, Lissy, in terms, because you're in that classical music <laughs> world more than us, what do you think are the benefits of having an understanding of cognitive science of music? Or is it just interesting? I think, I think a lot of it is purely fascination. Like, I remember when I started the programme, I was talking to colleagues, present and past, about the kind of things I was learning and I know the things that really drew their interest were things like the tonosophic organization of the ear and the basilar membrane and just they were honestly and fundamental frequency and the fact that something could sound higher or lower if it was missing the fund you know uh -huh. the kind of things that are you know like optical illusions the things that are just phenomena they're like oh that's incredible okay. I would never have known that yeah, I think yeah. they're just like they're just fascinating and I think you know you don't necessarily have to have a super deep knowledge of science to kind of understand well maybe you do actually with fundamental frequency but yeah I think stuff like that is just really fascinating the idea that your brain can actually it, I know for us it's quite commonplace but you know get bigger in some yeah. regions yeah, yeah, yeah. is and that being demonstrative of expertise in a certain area is really yeah. fascinating so to I people. suppose also um, maybe a way in which it would be interesting or important if you're a musician if was to understand a little bit about principles of learning and yep. memory so for instance I think um, I think we cover actually um, things to do with chunking strategies during learning yeah so, definitely um, you know, what are the features of a piece of music that allow somebody to, to, commit, to commit a piece to memory and yeah. what are the different possible practice strategies and is, is there any evidence that one is better than the other? A few years ago I supervised a project um, looking at um, uh, something called backward, uh, I've forgotten what the actual term is, but the idea that 
you, you could learn a piece by first of all learning the final bar of the piece and then you add the penultimate bar mm -hmm. and then you so you work backwards so basically the material that you learn first and best is at the end of the piece um, and the adv one possible advantage of that is that you are always um, playing material that you're secure at playing whereas normally when we when we start at the mm. beginning and we practice um, we're going into unknown territory yeah and then we always of course go back to the beginning once we make a mistake so the, the start of a piece gets really really well practiced um, but that may not be the best way of doing it so there's different schools of thought about um, how best to approach this and so I suppose that's one of the areas that um, that musicians might really take away and apply to mm. their to their learning. Um, it's still more dedication than me. I practice my favourite bit yeah. over and over. <laughs> don't like the beginning, but we're moving on. <laughs> I suppose we don't really know. Um, we often don't know what people are really wanting to get from the programme, but also some of the students perhaps don't really know mm. what they want to get from it until after they've done it. Uh, for some, it's just a fascination with the material. Um, but for others, you know, it could really take them into new directions. So some of our students have gone into, um, you know, using music clinically, um, like in a music therapy sense. We have to underline the fact that... Um, that if you want to be an actual music therapist, you have to do a, a master's in music therapy, and, and our master's program um, would not qualify you to be a music therapist. Nevertheless, it gives a grounding in in the uh, areas that are that would be relevant to that. And some of our students have gone to work in clinical settings, um, even if they haven't uh, gone on to do music therapy per se. We've also had students um, go on to work with. Um, uh, sound branding agencies, or um, you know, and and Daniel's the expert in putting students in touch with um, with these uh, kind of professionals, um, data scientists. Um, so I mean, uh, sometimes um, students have gone on to work um, with music and early years. Mm. So it's a massive range, really, in terms of um, where they might go. Um, I mean, a few years ago, we sat down and uh, tried to work out how many papers have been published from students on the programme. And I think we must have got to about 55 or 60 published journal articles, peer-reviewed published journal articles from projects um, on the programme. And that's really unusual because most master's students don't get to publish. Um, and, you know, uh, a, a, and some, you know, blah. I don't know. <laughs> that sentence didn't go anywhere. Um, but also, as well as um, a large number of publications, um, there are by now um, a, a, a large number of alumni who've gone on to do PhDs. So they've stayed in academia and they've gone to do PhDs either with us at Goldsmiths or um, with colleagues at other universities, um, both in the UK and abroad. And some of those students have finished their PhDs now and are running their own labs. So really, it's been wonderful to see how the, the Music, Mind and Brain programme has, if you like, proliferated mm. the, the research. And I really feel that quite strongly because when we go to conferences, 
Um, we, um, you know, we feel quite proud of the students that are kind of presenting work that they've done on this programme, and there's always a very good um, representation from goldsmiths um, and, you know, collaborations um, with colleagues across the world, um, starting with work done here at Goldsmiths. Yeah, maybe just to, to add to that, I think the um, if you come onto the program and you're really curious and have a, keep an open mind, then you'll find many, many interesting things like musical phenomena or how music works and the ways to study music. And uh, the best students are often the ones that soak up everything that, that they get presented and don't have a, a very clear idea of what they'd want to do with this master's afterwards. But often, uh, you come across material or studies or particular research area that you hadn't heard before and that you find particularly fascinating. And uh, then you have the time actually to, to go into that and do your research project in that area or read more about that area. And then it can take many different ways. So you either discover your love for um, uh, writing and reading scientific papers and you stay in academia, or you see a perspective for you, um, combining the rigorous scientific thinking with, uh, say, a job in industry or a job in the media world uh, or something else. But it will definitely change uh, the way you approach things. And we've had many people who came from a profession already being a music therapist and then studying on the project uh, program, or already um, working in the music and advertising world but then when they went back into their old uh, job or their old company they approached their job very differently uh, were looking out for different responsibilities and opportunities to actually include this uh, scientific perspective that they've uh, come to appreciate at Goldsmith. I mean I think I was just going to add to that as well that I think programs such as this especially when we still have people coming in like I, I didn't have a particularly scientific background when I came in and one of the huge things I've taken away from this is is data science and that skill and I think as companies across the arts you know they've possibly they're less saturated with digital natives than say other industries but I think they're becoming a lot more data driven now and programs like this where you can kind of sit at that intersection of arts and science uh, hopefully going to become even more popular although it's a fantastic program there's no reason it wouldn't be popular but those kind of outcomes and the skill set that you leave with really does give you an enormous amount of options and being able to kind of communicate with both arts people digital people data people I think is is quite an important new niche um, yeah I that I think because it really is the case that they're starting to engage a lot more with research now. They're starting to kind of run their own experiments. And I think it would just be a really exciting opportunity for people from, from this course with this skill set to go out into the arts world and, and kind of start leading in a more data-driven way, which is a very exciting avenue. And also maybe just to say, because we've been going since 2008... Um, with roughly, uh, you know, 20, 30 students per year. Um, there's now a family of MMB alumni across the globe, um, many of whom might be running their own research groups um, or working in um, uh, advertising agencies around music or 
working um, it, with music in a clinical setting, for instance. And actually, this is a network that we that's incredibly valuable. And so we can put students in touch with these alumni, and actually they, you know, can offer a wide range of further opportunities. So, so that's kind of real added value of you know having built up the program and um, seeing seeing our alumni sort of flourish. Um, after they finish with us. Yeah, and just to say, this network actually works both ways. So um, there are students who come, come new on the program and who ask us, oh, I want to work in this area or that area. Do you have any contacts there? And often we can uh, then think of a previous MMB alumnus who would be working there and, and, and direct them. But it's also the other way around, that we have MMB alumni working in in companies or institutions that come to us and say, oh, we've got uh, these uh, internships going here or we're advertising a new job that uh, has a profile that would be very similar to what an MLB graduate would have. Do you have any people that you can recommend? So that's uh, as well something that does happen quite regularly. And uh, I think there's a relationship of trust as well that uh, uh, people affiliated with MLB take their job and their role serious in, in either way. I suppose one thing that we haven't mentioned is that we have um, an eminent speaker program as mm. part of the, part of the, um, the Masters. Um, and with that, we, we've been able to, um, to attract some you know, international superstars to speak with the, with the current uh, Masters students about their research. And um, the, what we've done is we, we assess students on a collaborative blog that they write about um, one of the invited speakers. Um, and actually we then publish um, the blog um, on, uh, on a website so that um, you know, the work can be seen uh, quite widely. Um, but it's, um, it's really a, a wonderful opportunity for the current students to, um, to, to get to know some, some really um, high-profile researchers in the field. Yeah, I think just to add to uh, what Lauren and Daniel have said, um, obviously um, we create this community of uh, music psychologists um, who continue in academia or people who go on and just, you know, Bring what they've learned to the different professions. Uh, we like to think we give them skills to continue to ask questions and know where to find the answers, which I think is important because perhaps before the program you would read a, a newspaper article about something but not click on the, the actual paper to learn more about actually how the study was conducted and you know critique it yourself. Now after the, after the, the MMB uh, masters you might um, and I like to think that uh, programs like ours really enrich psychology and neuroscience. Um, back in the day, um, when I was studying neuroscience, I had to have, you know, long conversations with my tutor before I found the right place to be, you know, where I could ask these more, um, what I found, more interesting questions about our perception, about our emotions. And, yeah, now um, people won't have to look very far to find, you know, our program or work that's been done at other institutions that are similar to our work. And I think that's really important because it makes psychologists and neuroscience and the field in general have to ask these more difficult questions uh, rather than focusing on 
how a mouse, for instance, uh, how the brain is reacting, hearing a series of beeps. Now we have to ask how our complex brains, and we have very complex brains, uh, are responding to highly complex stimuli like music and the arts in general.